1: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Property Voice podcast. My name is Richard Brown and as always, it's a pleasure to have you join me again on the show today. Before I get into the heart of today's show, I just wanted to share a few numbers and, uh, and some feedback that I've had. Um, and I don't really make a big deal about this, but uh, I probably should have done. So uh, I'm just going to make up for it now with a couple of seconds and um, the first thing I want to let you know is that uh, a month or two back we quietly passed the 100,000 unique downloads marker for the podcast and also we had our first 10,000 unique download month as well. So they're pretty big milestones and I kind of should have made more of a fanfare about them at the time. But uh, just want to say thank you for all you unique people that uh, have downloaded. Um, and it's organically growing as well. The uh, the trend line is up. So um, that's, that's very good. It's great to see. Thank you so much. And um, I don't sort of keep a strict number, numbering sequence of the podcast. And so I kind of had to do a bit of backtracking on this. But we also slipped past 100 episodes as well. So we're just over the 100 mark now. Um, Probably should have made a bit more of a fanfare about that as well. A couple of episodes back was the 100th one. So uh, I think this is about 103 now, something like that. So there we go. And it's included uh, no less than three separate series The first one was all about property investment foundations, the second one was all about property cycles, and the third one was all about property finance. And of course I've had all the various flavours of one-off episodes in between, um, such as this one, where I get to share what's on my mind, what's on your mind, or what's topical in property at the time of recording too. So quite a lot of variety, quite a lot of content. I haven't even added up the hours, but um, if we say it's uh, at least half an hour, it could sometimes be considerably more than that. It's quite a lot of hours of content, 50 hours or more of uh, of property insights and knowledge sharing that's, uh, that's taken place on the Property Voice podcast. Equally, we've had around 45 extremely positive podcast reviews now on the various platforms. Um, so thank you for those people who've left a review. um, I think they're all very, very positive, so I really appreciate that. In addition to which, we've got a four-digit subscriber mailing list, and uh, I regularly receive um, emails, Facebook and LinkedIn messages, tweets, and the odd telephone call or voice message with comments, questions, and queries, or just a simple thank you to add to the mix. So something tells me you are getting something out of all of this. I really hope you are anyway, because um, if not, then one or both of us is kind of mad. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I hope you're getting something out of it. And that's my point, really. So I uh, I know this is a, something of an acquired taste of a podcast uh, with less fluff and gizmo entertainment value and a lot more straight talking, knowledge sharing, deeper dive insights than some of the others that are out there. So that probably means it ain't going to get to number one in the charts either. And that's okay with me, as I'm more interested in helping a few serious and committed types to, uh, to make a success of their property investing journey, rather than topping the popularity charts. Okay, well, if I could have both... Yeah. Okay. Probably not going to do it the way I'm uh, delivering the show now. So I'd rather go deep dive, share a lot of uh, qualitative information and, um, and hopefully give, give some more meaningful educational content. That's always been my purpose. And I'm going to stick with that principle. And it does kind of mean that some people won't stick with it, but uh, there we go. But I would like to do uh, is, is get more people to, to know and to try the podcast if at all possible. And as you know, I've, uh, I've not gone on, on about reviews and that kind of thing for a little while now. Apart from Dave in the outro, that is. His name isn't actually Dave, but I've just given him that name now. But if you listen to the outro every week, he does actually suggest maybe you can leave a podcast review. But uh, so here's my request from you before you pack the sun cream, forget about everything and head off on your jollies. Please, would you consider helping to spread the word about the podcast? You will? That's great. Then here's three things that I could suggest you could do. The first one is an iTunes review, and that will help others to find this podcast. So please do consider even consider leaving a five star review and let's at least get it up the charts or a noteworthy tip would be nice. And if you don't think it's worth five stars, no problem. Just drop me a line and let me know instead. Then I can potentially do something about it the second thing perhaps to do is just look out for those podcast episode links that get sent out via social media a lot of you will probably be connected to me in some way or another whether it's on Facebook or Twitter or on LinkedIn they're the main sort of channels that I tend to share and I've got you know most of my connections with sometimes on uh, on the scoop it platform as well and so every single week um, myself and my assistant we share the podcast links trying to get the word out so, Just have a look out for them and maybe a quick share on your Facebook page, LinkedIn profile or Twitter feed as and when you see the show being notified is all it takes to generate some organic reach and, and just get to one or two more people. So just click and share now and again. Three, join the mailing list. And you can do that by just ping an email, podcast at thepropertyvoice.net. Say hello if you like, but uh, just say add me to the mailing list if you don't want to get into any sort of extended uh, conversation. And that'll let you get the show note updates and other goodies from time to time as well. And every now and again, once you get an email, just consider forwarding the odd email on with the podcast notification included that would be great. Just a saw this and thought of you type of message will probably be better than spamming your entire contact list. There's no need for all that. Unless you insist, of course. (laughs) So that's it really, a uh, quick call to help spread the word. Would that be okay with you? Great, thanks. Okay, now the promotional bit is over. Let's get back on topic again now. Where were we? Oh yes, yes, property prices, property prices. That's what I think we're gonna talk about today. Everyone likes to talk about uh, house prices, don't they? Whilst for me, talking about house prices often leads to a speculative guess of of what they will do. There is no doubt in my mind that UK house prices have been and will continue to be propped up over the long term. Some may say by a rigged system that ensures it. Hmm. So what are the key factors that give rise to this notion of mine? Let's have a little chat and see what unfolds then, shall we?
0: Okay, so let's get on with this week's featured topic with Property Chatter.
1: Well, I've prepared a a set of bullet points more than a script for today's show. Um, So if I fancy, I might dwell on some points more than others. Uh, That said, I may just rattle off the list and and have you done in next to no time this week, as I'm feeling ready for a summer break and a little bit demob happy, if I'm honest with you. Uh, But stick with me to the end, and I shall let you know um, what to expect over the rest of the summer. Meanwhile, let's dive into um, what are the factors that I believe are going to prop up property prices. In fact, they have been. And to some extent, they will continue to do so. There's a bit of a caveat uh, to all of this, which I'll bring in at the end. But in the meantime, let's just consider some of those factors now, shall we? And I've brought, broken them down into a few sort of key areas, if you like. Um, there'll, there'll be one or two that you could argue could slip into other areas or they, they straddle more than one. So uh, don't don't sort of uh, pick pick holes in, oh, that's really a, a sort of personal finance issue. That's more of a finance industry issue. That's government policy as you as I go through the list. Um, Bear with me, in other words. So just look at the uh, the content rather than the organisation structure. So the first headline, if you like, or the first set of factors I wanted to bring out was personal financial factors. So these are all things I believe are contributing to propping up house prices and potentially leading to uh, a rigged system is a strong word for it. But, you know, a, a propensity for property prices to continue rising um, over the long period of time. And the first one to bring out is dual income borrowing. So that's really that that didn't used to exist. If you remember back in the 50s, you know, it used to be, uh, you know, one breadwinner at home. That was the family makeup. And, of course, we're a long way from that now. And, you know, I, I'm you know, I'm not hankering back to those days and wishing they were still here. It's just a reality that now we have uh, sometimes dual income, sometimes more than two incomes in a household earning and contributing to household income. And as a result of that, that means more borrowing power as well. Then, of course, we've got bank of mum and dad deposits. Some may say it's because of necessity. Well, the baby boomers, if you like, Going back to some of those days of the sort of fifties and the sixties, you know, where my parents came uh, came from, um, the baby boomers, um, they they had it good, if you like, with house prices. There was booms certainly in the 70s, late seventies and the and the eighties, and uh, and 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 that generation, the baby boomers, so certainly. Profited from house prices and now I guess they're in a position where uh, they've got some equity in their home potentially and of course their children and you know you know people coming up through the generations now maybe are finding it a little bit more difficult to get on the housing ladder. So but the bank of mom and dad you know can come to the rescue in various guises and help uh, subsidize a deposit whether it's through some of these mortgages that are available now there are specialist lenders out there I think Barclays do one. I think Nationwide do. I know Barclays definitely do. But, um, you know, uh, bank of mum and dad deposits. And then, of course, we've got to um, peep that there's a there's a trend line of committing more of our disposable income towards housing costs. You know what? What's the causation here? I, you know, it's hard to say. But I think the trend is people are tending to spend more of their income on housing costs these days than they ever used to. It's more of a priority, is it, or is it just that the cost has gone up? As I say, it's causation. I'm not really sure. But but they're committing more. That's the point. They're willing to spend more. They're maybe having to spend more. And so there's a greater you know priority um, and focus of spending money on housing. And that's, uh, you know, I'm sure there's a lot more, but uh, the, there are other things, I'm sure, in, in personal finance factors. But next, it takes us into the financial industry and indeed the investment community. So I've got, I've got a few things to talk about in terms of, uh, of that area now. Of course, what we've got at the moment is a record low mortgage rates. Interest rates have been um, historically low for around about eight years now, the sort of 0.5% mark base rate. And of course, mortgage rates are extremely low as well. I had someone write into me recently who was talking about having a mortgage at 1.14% or something like that. And you know, these sorts of deals are around, uh, not just in, um, in in the residential sector, but also you know, just a little bit higher in buy-to-let as well under certain circumstances. And so um, they're the most affordable, pretty much ever. Now, I'm not saying this is necessarily a long-term trend. But it's certainly been there for a little while now, and that's obviously contributing to buoying up um, house prices. But then even beyond that, we've got you know financial engineering or new product design that's coming out of uh, the finance industry. Buy-to-let mortgages are an example of this. They didn't exist 50 years ago. Um, they're a fairly recent phenomena, i.e. the last 20 years or so. So they didn't exist at all. So, again, financial services, they will come up with innovation, believe it or not. Um, And I think one of the latest ones is uh, 30-year and soon to be lifetime or even intergenerational mortgages. You don't see lots of those. You see more 30-year mortgages popping up, Um, occasionally lifetime mortgages and intergenerational mortgages. And the latter two, they, they are actually they do exist outside of the UK more prevalently, uh, particularly in cultures that support this sort of intergenerational living. And I'm expecting to see more of that come into the UK financial services landscape as well. And of course, that will therefore mean you can spread a mortgage to uh, mortgage balance over a longer period of time and make it more affordable. Then you've got bank leverage ratios. I'm not going to get too technical about this. But essentially, if you take a pound and you deposit it in a bank account, then that bank can leverage it, I lend it out, create money, effectively, out of that one pound. Um, the, the exact figures vary, but it could be as much as £10 pounds for every one pound that you deposit. It's quite a significant amount that they can create out of the money that you deposit. So bank leveraging ratios allows money to circulate through the money supply and often that goes in the form of borrowing. Then you've got a a sort of a a related point if you like about bank profit targets. I mean any corporate entity has profit targets and any corporate entity that reports on a quarterly basis is, you know, monitored in in that basis as well. So the city's quite short term and its demand for profits um, it, you know, it doesn't even wait a year. It wants to see quarterly improvements often. So the banks are no exception to this. They're driving for profit. And so they have to innovate. They have to put their money out there, put it at risk to get a return. And so that's going to drive the market as well. And um, of course, you know, a- asset backed lending, such as property, is quite appealing to a bank. Some would argue otherwise, but um, generally it is. It's certainly more appealing than uh, unsecured debt, for, for example. So it's always going to be fairly appealing as a modestly, you know, uh, low-risk uh, lending op- opportunity, and then you've got, um, you know, a related point really, which is all about shareholder demand for higher dividends, higher dividends and share price uh, growth rates as well, and that uh, that again, you know, is a pull on on banks and other institutions um, to drive investment. And of course, that will lead to extended lending as a result of that. So there's quite a lot of things going on in the, in the finance industry and, the, and indeed the, the wider investment community as well, which is all about growth. You know, every, everything you, you talk about seems to be driving for growth and, uh, and the property and the financial services sectors are no different. Then we've got a few global factors. It's not an exhaustive list. It's more an indicative list, if you like. And so, um, you know, from a global point of view, we've got, you know, evidence of rich foreign investors that uh, are coming to the UK. Um, They're often buying not exclusively in London, but they often buy in London. Yes. And some of those uh, investors are leaving homes empty as well. And that's relevant for a couple of reasons. One is it in increases demand uh, because of the uh, the influx of these people with uh, deep pockets. But it also in some to some extent restricts supply as well, particularly obviously if they're leaving the home empty. So I'm not saying that's a massive number that leave them empty. And I think sometimes it gets blown out of all proportion In all honesty uh, by the media. But um, it's true. Uh, some people do come, they buy property and they leave it empty. Um, the other thing, particularly of late, which has buoyed up um, prices, is the weak pound, and it's particularly dr- uh, given rise to overseas investors. And this is an interesting one because obviously you go through periods where the pound is strong and where the pound is weak. But right now, there's a you know de facto price reduction of ten to twenty percent from a, a dollar basis at least, uh, which is attracting people with uh, that kind of currency. Um, it's not, not been quite the same with the euro, but sort of uh, non, non-euro non denominated currencies have, have seen an effective price discount uh, for investing in the UK. Of course, when you see a price reduction, you see value. And when you see value, you see investors. So that's uh, it's brought people to the UK market. And a somewhat related point, not just that, you know, the the currency is weaker, and it, it kind of creates value. It's the UK seen as a safe haven investment location in itself, anyway. Again, particularly London, but not exclusively so. Uh, there's a lot of talk these days about Chinese investors, for example, going into the Northern powerhouse. Seen quite a lot of articles about that um, of late as well. So, and again, not just the Chinese, but you know, a whole range of different uh, types of investor coming in from overseas. And of course, we've got a strong economy. A a stable legal system, uh, and indeed, you know, believe it or not, a stable political system as well. Uh, I know that might sound a bit crazy uh, after the last sort of twelve months or two years or so that we've had uh, with all the elections and referenda uh, that we've been through. But you know, we've been, we are a consistent uh, organisation. There's, there's fair, you know, we're not. There's no dictatorship or extreme communism. That's my point. And uh, we've got a safe legal system. That you know, if you buy, you buy a piece of land or you buy a property, it's tangible, it's secure. No one can easily take it off you it's, it's recorded in the public domain there's no land grabbing and that kind of thing that goes on so um and you know a consistently high economic performer in the I think we're in the top five uh, global economies as well so that's always going to attract inward investment from overseas as well so there's some of the global factors that I kind of wanted to get out and um you know knocking moving on from that rather is um government policy <laughs> I probably could talk a lot about this but um just, just one of the first points that's on my little list here is uh, the greedy exchequer, um, tax re- revenues, drug addiction. It's quite, a, <laughs> that's a sort of a note to self point, isn't it? It's um, the po- the point is this: um, tax revenues are the lifeblood of uh, of government spending, and so you know there's a number of ways in which the government can collect taxes, but property taxation has been and is increasingly it, you know crucial to the UK government's coffers and so uh, the, you know, they're not going to you know welcome a, a, a sort of a crash in house prices anytime soon because if that happens not only will it have an impact on the economy generally but it'll have a direct impact on the government's ability to carry out its agenda and it doesn't matter what color persuasion of political party that you have whether it's red blue or yellow or anything else for that matter, um, it you know they all rely on public on on gathering taxation to fund their agenda. So um, and property taxation is become something of an addiction, and it's going to be very difficult to wean off that kind of addiction. Uh, anytime soon and so that's why you, for example you see the 3% stamp duty uh, premium that's been applied to buy to let investors it's going to be difficult for the government to do a u-turn on that because if they do they're going to have to raise taxes from somewhere else instead and of course we're uh, we're, we're an easy target we're we're not sort of a, a mass movement and it's going to be hard for us to defend uh, as opposed to other sections of uh, society. So I'm not making a political comment. It's just, it's just the reality, really, that um, the exchequer has got used to raising taxes. So I don't see it you know, falling away anytime soon. And therefore, you could argue there's a need for property prices to remain high to, to keep government uh, spending high as well. So just keep that in mind. And then of course we've got uh, quantitative easing. Well, it's been around for a little while now, but uh, and many people have kind of forgotten it's still there. But this is the printing press of money. It's, it's literally creating money out of nothing uh, and pushing it into the money supply. And uh, the whole point of the agenda is the government prints money and it gives it to the banks and it asks the banks to uh, invest and lend that money out, uh, particularly to corporates, small you know small businesses and and consumers. And so it's the the design is to is to fuel the economy, inflate the economy, if you like, and and get it going again. Now that's going to it is going to have to end at some point in time. But uh, as my next point highlights, the um, the the problem of the debt that's being created by quantitative easing is going to be offset to some extent by inflation. And um, this has been a sort of a long-held you know government borrowing principle that, uh, and it happened, for example, when we funded the uh, the World War, that uh, borrowing was increased massively to fund the war effort, but inflation has effectively eroded away the um, the, the effect of that uh, borrowing. So it's it's diminished in its uh, scale or its importance over time. And it'll be the same with QE, uh, quantitative easing. Um, inflation will help to erode or, or diminish the extent of that debt. Now, it's pretty sizable, and I have to say inflation at sort of, about two percent at the moment it's not going to eat it like super quick but it will actually eat away at it eventually so um, that's going to be there as well so and, and of course the whole inflation eating debt argument doesn't just res- get restricted to uh, quantitative easing it's you know public sector uh, borrowing in general but it's also private sector borrowing and um, you know perhaps we're going to talk about uh, another element we'll talk about the effect of inflation on our own mortgages and that kind of thing so this inflation is it can it can be our best friend at times as well, and then we've got you know some of the housing specific policies. We've got pension freedoms. Actually, that's not housing specific, uh, of course, because it's pension freedoms. But with pension freedoms, that means that people can take their their pensions out and they can they can you know spend it on on a house deposit or buy to let property deposit in particular. So they can take their money out and do that. Then we've got various forms of help to buy. We've got help to buy ISA. We've got to help to buy. I've <laughs> written in my notes fake deposits. So this is sort of equity loans and, and and whatnot from the government, which is all aimed at you know effectively uh, helping people to get on the housing ladder, which you can argue is a good thing. And it's a good thing to help people to get onto the housing ladder. Of course it is, but at the same time, of course, it props up prices. So uh, because, you know, people can, f- can get on the ladder more easily, they can still purchase, even though, as I read the other day, that the average deposit is somewhere between 40 and 50,000 pounds these days. So it's quite a significant amount of money. Um, so that's some government policy factors, if you like. And then we've got some, you know, more structural housing issues or housing factors. Uh, let's not forget, we live on an island um, and it's got limited land. Or limited land in particular that's capable of being developed in the right places. I forget the stats, but I believe the amount of built-on uh, land in the UK—I'm um, I'm, going to guess—but I think it's somewhere between five and fifteen percent. It wasn't—it's not a huge amount of uh, of the UK that is actually built up in reality. In other words, the vast majority of the UK is not built up um, significantly. So, in fact. But it's where it's where we need housing that uh, we're struggling and so we've got limited land that's available or certainly capable of being developed in the right places and in the right places is usually the cities and that's where people have been migrating to. So as a result of that we've got or not not directly just as a result of that but equally we've got a shortage of new housing supply. Been well documented now. The Barker report. We've got a shortage of supply, which is you know being added to year on year. We can't build enough houses, despite you know it being on the political agenda. We're not. We, we, we can't even build what we need on an annual basis, let alone catch up with the backlog. And, uh, and, and of course overall this is a shortage, but equally in particular for social housing. if you just look at the trend line for social housing over the last 10 to 20 years, it's been you it's know, just almost you know obliterated, frankly. And so uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of social housing is now being picked up by the private rental sector, uh, private rented sector, i.e us. And so uh, we get a bit of a kicking at times, but actually we picked up a lot of the slack. And uh, to reverse that trend is going to take quite a lot of investment, so it's not going to happen anytime soon. Um, but there is a shortage of housing supply and when you've got a shortage of supply, it tends to push prices up. And then we've got planning restrictions. Um, <laughs> despite best intentions of governments, you know, we've still got a green belt uh, that we won't build on and that's been upheld recently. Um, there's, there's all sorts of planning restrictions that limit the, our ability to build houses. It seems strange, particularly when I said how much of the UK is not built up, that we can't find you know places to build. I know that there's a garden city type of agenda, but I don't really see it emerging anytime soon. I think it's a good idea, but um, it's not really taking place. I think there's, there's bits and pieces uh, taking place. But as a result of planning restrictions, of course, it keeps a lid on supply again. And then we've got empty homes. There are a number of empty homes dotted around. And there's a variety of different empty home policies that you know uh, exist from local authority to local authority. Some of them have a list, some of them don't. You know, Some of them have a clear agenda to bring empty homes back into usage and maybe some sort of scheme. There was a famous scheme recently, or the odd year, year or two ago in Stoke-on-Trent, if you remember, buy a house for a pound and uh, there were empty houses they're probably not in the best of condition um, but you could buy it for a pound and of course you know then you'd be encouraged to do it up and so there'll be support to do that but that's not a widely held policy and so there are surprisingly uh, a reasonable number of empty homes which of course could be easily put, put into use with the right kind of will and agenda and of course if they're not put into use they restrict supply again and then we've seen particularly recently we've got reduced transaction levels Um, caused by fewer sales instructions and and that's happened for a number of reasons but um, you know Brexit, you know, dashed confidence if you like so people decided to sit tight uh, and not to move Uh, the only people really moving were people who had to I suppose so with a restriction in transaction levels again in particular it has a restriction on supply so a lot of these things I'm talking about now restrict housing supply and of course pure economics says when you restrict supply you keep pricing high and I don't really see an end to this anytime soon, not, not certainly in, in the near future. And I, I really believe it's going to be decades before we see a, a turnaround in some of these points, um, truly, that is. And of course, apart from the structural issues, we've got um, what I call socio-economic change as well. So this is what happens, you know, to, to families and communities, really. And um, And one of the big ones we've seen trending over a period of time is changes in social structure. Uh, we've seen more family breakdown, more single parent families, uh, people living alone um, in, in in communities these days. So um, there's quite a lot of uh, change that we've experienced. It's not been an overnight thing. It's been a gradual thing. It's nobody's fault as such. It just is. And so what that means is there's more demand for housing. You know, there's more there's more households now than there used to be. So this is adding. It's not just about pure population. It's also about the makeup of of society, and that of course creates demand. Um, you know, a similar point. You know, we've got greater mobility to follow our careers. Um, it used to be the case that you know you go and work for a company local to where you you grew up, and you do your forty years and you get your watch when you retire, type of thing. Um, and now it's like miles away from the truth. You know, we've got the gig economy. We've got um, all sorts of different tools and expectations now uh, of how people work. And it's changing zero hours, contracts, uh, people job hopping. You know, uh, also we got changes in the in the in the sort of employment landscape with um you know, redundancies and and that kind of restructuring that takes place as well, and so people are travelling. People are travelling from uh, the the rural uh, countryside to the cities, but they're also travelling into city. They're also travelling internationally, and so uh, that's creating greater mobility and therefore moving around. And, and And in particular, people are coming to the UK, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, in fact, well, I'll talk about it now. Um, we've got population changes such as net migration. So we've got people coming into the UK from overseas and I know it's a topical point and I know it's something that's going to get, you know, uh, done, you know, kicked around a bit actually over the, the term of the Brexit process as we negotiate our exit from the EU. But net migration isn't just from the EU, um, it's from, you know, international, you know, quarters. And I have to tell you that most migrants make an economic contribution. They want to come here, they want to contribute and they do. So um, people, people like to live here for reasons I mentioned earlier. It's a safe haven. It's got strong uh, political and uh, economic and legal factors. So people want to come here and they do. And, um, and we've also got longer life expectancy as well. So we've got you know, people living longer, people got better health care. Um, you know, so you know, we, we need to live somewhere for longer than we ever used to do. So this all creates added demand. Uh, into it and even even with things like brexit changing and uh, potentially and I do say potentially because who knows what will actually happen um, potentially a, a cap on numbers of, of migrants coming into the UK it's not going to be reversed anytime soon and in fact actually I, I would actually argue that we need an element of migration so um, uh, it's not actually me arguing. it's you know it's it's the governments argue they need migration, need workers and need people to come and make a contribution. So I do see some capping, but I don't see it being completely reversed where reverse where we start to see large swathes of net uh, uh, emigration leaving the country. And then we've got another sort of uh, change we've got I alluded to earlier about urbanization. People, you know, I think more people now live in cities, certainly in the UK and in the West in general, than in the countryside. And that's been a shift. That's been a shift in, uh, in as a trend over time. It used to be the case that more people lived in the countryside or rural areas than they did in the cities. Now it's much more in, in the cities. It kind of goes on to what I was saying about not having the homes in the right places. Cities are now hubs. They are, it's where industry is, it's where policy and decision making takes place. Um, It's the economic heartblood of a country. And so I could really get into mega trends here, but you know, I I, I won't. Uh, Essentially, uh, urbanization has increased and it will continue to increase. And as a result of that, it will drive demand for housing, particularly, of course, in cities. And then we've got uh, NIMBYs, not in my backyard. That's what NIMBY stands for, and um, isn't it amazing? We talk about—I don't know—I just want to give a couple of examples. You know, we might talk about um, some migrants who, in war-torn countries, you know, needing some some support and somewhere to live, and and that kind of thing, because they've been displaced because of uh, being their, their their country being torn apart, really, and they've they've had to come and look. I mean, I don't want to get too political about this. It's just they need to escape and they need to find somewhere else safe they can live. And you know, there's a sort of general acceptance that that needs to happen, but of course, you know, you try and put a a, a house up which accommodates those sort of people, and you just get a load of objections. It's same with uh, ex-offenders, you know, anyone that one of these sort of categories that um, perhaps you know could be looked down upon. It's like, yes, we should do something for them, but not in my backyard. So. Um, where I'm going with this is I'm not trying to get too heavy or you know socially you know outspoken. It's just that um, people you know, don't want things like they don't want things like wind farms on their doorstep. They don't want things like immigrants living next door to them for some reason. and so that um, you know creates a lot of planning objection and, and noise really in the system and um, and therefore it you know it, there isn't you know that the supply isn't created for them. And then I guess we, you know, drift into slightly different territory here. We can talk about um, economic cycles generally. So we've got uh, the whole. The point is, that econ- economies go in cycles, um, and there's been many, many a politician who've tried to control this. Uh, uh, famously, <laughs> I'm sure, but it, they do. They go in cycles. It goes from boom to bust to boom again, and um, it's been tried to be moderated with macroeconomic policy and all this sort of stuff. But essentially, it just happens. So, economies go in cycles, and that means it fuels it fuels the uh, the, the economy so that people you know get wages. They can spend their money. They can afford housing. They can invest in this sort of thing. And similarly, property markets also go in cycles, not necessarily identical. Uh, there's, there's definitely an influence from economic cycle to property cycle. Um, but I think uh, in particular, there's a strong influence or um, relationship in property cycles to financial cycles and the ease of credit. So when credit is squeezed, then you tend to find house prices are also limited. But when credit is freely available, then you tend to see it, it being more released. And um, I think we've seen a little bit of a mix and match approach to be quite honest in this area of late. Um, I think after the uh, the economic, the financial crisis, you know, uh, th- there was, you know, there was no lending in around right about 2009, uh, very limited lending, unless you had large deposits and you were safe bet and that kind of thing. And, um, you know, it started to loosen off a bit, but um, I know the Bank of England is, is, is kind of putting some brakes on that as well now. So that may be a little bit of a a double-edged sword this one I'm talking about now but fundamentally we see property cycles and that's my point. So we see it go through a wave and it's kind of an upward trajectory. Yes there'll be a sort of a blow-off or a bit of a correction at some point but it will just tend to go up. So study them, study uh, economic cycles and property cycles and you'll see that that's true and you know I can point you to a number of resources if you'd like to know more about that. And of course, then we've got, you know, we've got that's a sort of macro level of, uh, of cycles. We've also got more of a an inter, inter-country inter level uh, cycle. So property price growth tends to ripple out from the centre and the centre of the UK is London. And, you know, don't all write in and it's not the centre of the UK, etc. I just mean economically, it's the largest, you know, largest city and um, it, it's the most sort of powerful centre. Um, rightly or wrongly, whether you believe it should be or not, it, it just is. And so um, it attracts the most investment. It usually recovers first. It usually declines first. Um, so follow the wave is the point. So it will ripple out from the, from London to the regions, and so you can just follow the wave if you want to see where prices perhaps will be uh, buoyed up, uh, you know, the highest um, as the wave unfolds. They've had the right metaphor probably isn't there. But um, the other one is inflation. In, infl- I kind of alluded to inflation earlier. Inflation makes things like home ownership and, in particular, mortgage payments more affordable over time. What tends to happen, of course, is you buy a buy a house, you have a mortgage. Now, forgetting interest rates for one minute, which of course can flex up and down, but the actual mortgage balance is is set at that point in time. Now, of course, if you move house, it does change again. But fundamentally, if you buy a property and you live in it for 25 years, then and you take a mortgage on day one, then then the mortgage will stay fixed but the house price will increase. So it just means it becomes more affordable. And because they become more affordable it means we can you know move up the property ladder as, as our income uh, improves over time as well. And that creates demand, pushes prices up. And, um, and similarly we've got rising employment. Now I know these are all again economic waves. so we'll get periods of high unemployment and high interest rates. And recession and all those sort of things which can work it down. But my point is, it's, it goes in a cycle, and this is where I'm actually going with this. It's not. It's not just about um, the here and now. It's about the long term, and and the long term drivers are upwards. If you just see the trend lines for economics, uh, growth rates, and uh, and GDP, and and all of that, all of that economic data, the trend line is up over time, and so because of that, property prices will trend up over time as well hope that came over clearly. Not sure. <laughs> and then, of course, we've got property as a broader asset class itself. Um, and that's, you know, it, it always was an asset class, but it's just become more popular, I suppose. Just think about the principle of an Englishman's castle. Englishman's home is his castle. And so uh, there's, you know, home ownership. Everyone's talking about home ownership um, rates declining. Um, but, you know, what, what what right do we have to own a home fundamentally? You know, I know people say it's a right, um, as with a number of other things. It's just it's more of a desire. It's not it's not necessarily um, a, a right that we should uh, lay claim to. But I think there's a desire, definitely, to to own our own home in this country uh, more so than some other ones. Then we've got things like, uh, from an investment point of view, we've got you know, programs like Homes Under the Hammer, location, 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 and this has created this whole swathe of, of I'm going to call them investment wannabes. Um, I'm probably one of those as well, um, to some extent. Uh, people who just want to get onto the bandwagon, want to, to make a few quid through property and see it as a you know, this, this you know, more populist asset class. So it's brought more people to look at housing in a slightly different way. I'm not making a comment whether it's right or wrong. It just is. And then um, buy-to-let, of course, itself has become more mainstream and acceptable. Um, of course, you know, like I mentioned earlier, buy select mortgages didn't exist 20 years ago. Now they're very commonplace. There's hundreds of buy select mortgages around and available now and on, on fairly decent terms as well. So it's, um, you know, there's, there's financing available to support our investments. Of course, I accept that uh, buy to let's a little bit under attack of late, particularly from taxation and other government policies. So I'm not, you know, I'm focusing a lot on what props up prices more so than what can diminish it uh, for the purposes of uh, this discussion today. But, you know, as I say, it's become more of mainstream. Uh, property investment, generally speaking. And then you've got these sort of new types of industry as well, or sub-niches of uh, of the property sector. We've got staycation holiday rentals and, stay- and second homes. You know, there's now second home lending that exists. There's now uh, particular types of lending products to support holiday rentals. You've got, um, you know, the whole swathe of Airbnb as alternative to staying in hotels. Uh, and other types of of holiday destinations. So it's it's kind of creating a whole new driver for property and looking at property in a different way. So as I mentioned, property as a broader asset class is probably my final point. And I guess all of these points that I've been driving to, my, my key point is this, they all help to prop up house prices, but not necessarily over short periods of time. So that was my big caveat that I alluded to at the beginning. So before everybody writes in and goes, "Yeah, do you not remember this period of time?" Yes, I do. I Remember all the crashes. Uh, we didn't have one. So we had one not so long ago. But it's it's many of these factors are propping up prices now, and some some might dissipate over the coming months and even years. However, when when they're added together, they do create this insatiable drive for house prices to continue to be driven upwards over the long period of time. Will we see periods of crazy price growth like we did in the 80s or early noughties? Oh, perhaps, yes, we will. Will we see periods where, you know, prices ease or even correct after a, a period of overextension? Definitely, yes, I would say. But my view is that property is both a basic need and as, a, as an ever popular asset class, as I've kind of alluded to, it's become much more popularist. It will remain in high demand and, and therefore retain its upward trajectory over the long term, yes. So yes, there might be some blips along the way, but over the long period of time, I expect the trend line to continue moving upwards. And we just need to set ourselves up in such a way that we can ride out the occasional lumps and bumps that will crop up along along the way from time to time. And overall though, property prices will continue to be pu- pushed upwards because, mm, bold statement, the system is designed for this to happen. <laughs> We might even think it's rigged to happen this way. So maybe that's a controversial statement. But, you know, if some of the arguments have outlined some of the some of the facts, some of the policies, some of the agenda that's out there from various uh, stakeholders, if you like, might suggest that it's designed that way. It's uh, the system, therefore, could be argued as being rigged. Okay, so that's that's me done, not only for now. Uh, but actually for a few weeks now as well. Uh, I hope, hope that discussion was uh, a good way to, to finish for now. I'll probably get a lot of uh, emails as a result of this episode. We'll, let's see. we'll have to see. But um, I'm going to take a well-earned break. And so August is going to be podcast-free, for me at least. Uh, I do have uh, a possible bonus episode up my sleeve, but I don't want to make any promises on that. Um, plus, it kind of depends on one or two things that I'm waiting to hear about so as to whether or not I record that particular episode. So... I'll just have to keep you in suspense on that one. So uh, any bonus episodes apart, I shall be back with a brand new episode on the first Wednesday in September, which is the 6th, I believe. And that's a whole month, and in fact, a five-week month at that without the Property Voice podcast. I hope you'll miss me, and more importantly, I hope you'll come back in September as I aim to refresh and recharge and get ready to go again with more property insights and knowledge-based sharing, and possibly the hint of a new series as well. Who knows? As you, uh, as you may now have some time on your hands, uh, why not add an iTunes review, a social media share, or an email forward to your, uh, to your mental or actual to-do list to help get the word out about the Property Voice podcast It'd be great if you could. In the meantime, I hope you've had a gre- you'll have had you have a great summer and uh, I hope you get a bit of chill time of your own as well. And finally, from me, you can email me at uh, podcast at propertyvoice.net if you want to talk about anything from today's show or more generally in property investing. And as usual, the show notes will be over at the website, thepropertyvoice.net. But for now, all I want to say is thank you very much for listening once again this week. And until next time on the Property Voice podcast, It's boa viagem e Ace logo. As my wife would say, well, have a great summer holiday and I'll see you
0: soon, if you prefer. Ciao, ciao. Thank you for listening today. Now head over to thepropertyvoice.net for more inspirational content and get updates through our mailing list. Join us next time on the Property Voice podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to rate us on iTunes.